Well, good morning, Cedarview. It's good to have you with us this Sunday morning. We're uh, working now on part two of Keeping Your Joy, the heartfelt theology of an isolated prisoner. And the title I've given to this morning's teaching is The Good Work of God and the People of the Future. The Good Work of God and the People of the Future. Philippians 1, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. I hope you have a Bible with you. So Philippians 1, 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day, so it was instantaneous, from the first day until now. And then these marvelous words, everybody quotes, and I am sure of this, confident, I think, in the old King James, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ comes back again. Now, we've already studied verses 3, 4, and 5. We, we did that last week. The reason I read them again is you need a proper running start if you're going to properly interpret verse 6. So, so verse 4, Paul, he just almost sings over his joyous prayer for these people. And I think whenever someone links um, their personal prayer time with great joy, we should listen to that. I mean, there are enough spiritual disciplines that just feel like chores. I love this idea that when Paul thinks about his prayer time, intercessory prayer for someone else, he links it with joy. I mean, don't rush over those remarkable words. Just right where you are, immediately make a list in your mind of the things that bring you joy. What do you most enjoy doing? Sports, shopping, success at work, new projects, travel, best friends, fine dining. Nothing wrong with any of those things, but it's so striking to me that Paul says, you know what? Prayer is this, what a joy producer. I just think that's a shocking revelation to a lot of people. But note, Carefully now, the source of Paul's joy wasn't just his love for these people at Philippi. It included that, of course. But the people to whom Paul writes, they, they, produced, they produced his joy more indirectly, like, like the moon reflects the light of the sun. The, the source of Paul's joy wasn't just these people generally. It was something these people were doing. And you see it in verse 5. His joy in praying for them comes from their, quote, partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Please notice, he's not talking about their reception of the gospel, as precious as that was, not their conversion. He's talking about their partnership in the gospel. We need understanding here. We, we need to share Paul's heart. 
we don't just support our missionaries because we love them. I mean, I hope we do. But we support and we sacrifice and we give and we pray and we go, not just because we love our missionaries, but because we love the gospel. We want the gospel to run throughout the earth. That is what gives us delirious joy. It's the thing that makes you want to go, hmm, and search your heart. And if there's anything that Paul loved with all his heart, it was the gospel. Over and over again, I I almost chuckle at the way Paul um, forgets himself a bit in his letters. It's like he, he can't help calling this great, mighty, saving work of God. He doesn't even usually just call it the gospel, but the phrase he uses over and over is my gospel. So he cherished it. He Picture, he, he cherishes it. Picture a man polishing his Porsche in the driveway on a sunny afternoon, and he rubs it and caresses it and shines it all up. My baby, my Porsche, my gospel. You see Paul's heart. And Paul could see that these people in Philippi, remember, he didn't even want to go visit them. These people cherished the gospel the way he cherished the gospel. It wasn't wasn't just something they said. That's not what he's talking about. It was was the things they did because of your partnership, verse 5, in the gospel from the first day till now. So it's not just uh, doctrinal correctness. That's very important. It's not just their theology that Paul is praising, but from the moment of their conversion. He said, from the very first day, these people... They, they rolled up their sleeves. They pressed into involvement for the advance of the gospel. It gave them joy doing it. They reached out to others in Philippi. They constantly supported Paul with their finances and in their prayer meetings. So they showed the priority and the value that they attached to the gospel. They showed that in their actions. And this just makes Paul's heart bubble over. When he prays, God had, God had changed their hearts, not just forgiven their sins. He had changed their hearts. They were not just saved. They were engaged. They were recruited. So, so their devotion to the Lord is miles away just from some dull religious profession. The church walls couldn't contain it. Paul saw this vitality and he loved it. And it was the source of his joy. Now, all of that leads into verse 6. Philippians 1, 6. And always look at the connectors. I'm sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So that that and at the beginning of verse 6, it links it up with verses 3, 4, and 5. So there was this powerful beginning to their walk with the Lord. 
they had been dramatically changed. It says from the first day until now. That's the last part of verse 5. Changed from the first day until now. And Paul says he's sure that this is going to continue. This is going to grow. God will keep on working in them right up till this day of Jesus Christ. See that there? Right up till the day of Christ. He will keep, he will keep working right up till then. And it makes us stop. This is what you should do when you study the Bible. It makes you stop and say, Paul, how do you know that? What makes you so sure? From whence arises this abounding, joyful confidence? Because it certainly wasn't the easy circumstances of these first Philippian converts. Remember some of the background we did last week. You can still get it online. Think about what would happen to someone like Lydia. Remember Lydia, whose heart the Lord so beautifully opened, the text says. So, so what happens to the business of someone who switches loyalties from a jealous dictator emperor to Jesus Christ? How much money do you think she made the year following her conversion now selling dying garments for the poor and the persecuted in this Roman Empire? What about that unnamed jailer? How does a Roman jailer earn a living for his family when he's known to have turned to Christ? from the Roman powers that paid his salary. Did he even escape with his life? How did he support his family after this? Then there was that woman, remember, freed from a spirit of divination. Sure, she was gloriously delivered, but I'm sure that wasn't the whole story. She had been making a sizable fortune for the men who had been exploiting and marketing her spirit of divination, as the New Testament describes it. And all that income disappeared when Jesus came into her life. How do you think those entrepreneurs felt about this woman? What did they do to her? Truth be told, you probably wouldn't predict a very bright future for any of those people. Remember, there was no one around the corner to protect their rights. Is it possible Paul had these people in mind when he said, I'm, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, verse 6. And now for those of you who are used to listening to me, you won't be shocked. Point number one. Let's unpack this now. The taproot of enduring faith is God's work, not our own potential. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, so there's his confidence, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And this he, that's God. And so Paul focuses his attention very precisely in that verse. It's about the work 
he has begun. The he isn't Paul. It isn't any of the Philippian converts. It's God. All, all theological truth needs balance if it's going to thrive and survive. Unbalanced truth is not much better than error. So there's a way of viewing the biblical stress and discipline on holiness and obedience. There's a way that sees the Christian life only from one end of the telescope. And I can pretty easily come to view only the parts of conversion that seem to uh, somehow, especially growth and holiness, that seem to arise and depend on me and my efforts. I don't think you can apologize. It seems essential to stress things like holiness and obedience. In this very letter, Paul will certainly encourage the disciples at Philippi to exert great effort and energy and stress and strain, just as he did. Look at, look at Philippians 3, 12 to 16. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. This is how you should act. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. So you can just see how almost every sentence is directed to what these people needed to do. And they need to be read with care. And they need to be read with obedience by any serious follower of Jesus Christ. But, but in Philippians 6, there's a complementary emphasis that goes along with all of this. And it's one that we shouldn't ignore ever. God has worked in these Christians. That's what he said. God is still working, and God will continue to work in them. That's Paul's emphasis. That's his confidence. It's not Paul's work, though he worked very hard. It's not their work, though they too had laid aside everything obediently to follow Jesus as Lord. But the work itself is God's work. And I just, I wonder, I wonder what Paul was picturing as he wrote those words. He who began this work. Did, did he have in the back of his head that he didn't even want to go to Philippi? That it wasn't even on his radar? It wasn't in any of his plans? He was on the way to Asia with no plan whatsoever to visit Philippi and then God showed up and God worked and God revealed another plan and God called him? Is that what he was thinking about? Or perhaps Paul remembered his very first convert, at least as far as we know. In Philippi, he remembered how he encountered Lydia, whose heart the Lord had opened. Oh, Paul was involved. He shared the gospel. But God was at work. Maybe Paul remembered the conversion of that Philippian jailer and his whole household. I mean, true, 
Paul explained the way of salvation to them, but none of that would have even come about except God sent an earthquake. God opened up the cell doors. And this whole conversation is a result of God being at work in the first place. His work at Philippi was God's work. He put it together. He brought it about. And there's just something of great weight here. Just forget for a minute all the splits and arguments between Calvinism and Arminianism. Put all that aside. The truth is clear and it's vital for Presbyterians and Methodists alike. Our own faith will never be strong and enduring unless it's God's great work in us. Of course, the desire for holiness, purity, that's always important. It's always good. But God is involved in the creation of that. It needs to be informed. All of our works, all of our efforts need to be informed and understood so they don't become proud and self-destructive. It's, it's so easy to only look inward. We know, I know my weaknesses. I know my faults. I know how I'd like to be and I know how I am. There's place for self-examination. The Bible says so. We examine our hearts. But the thing is, I only visit there. I look inwardly, but not despairingly because I know God works in me to deal with whatever I find in my heart that isn't complete, that, all, that isn't all it should be. We can look into our own hearts with both honesty and safety because we have confidence the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's God's work. We can boldly look into all the corners of our heart because as we follow Jesus, his love and his grace isn't dependent on what I find in my heart. Just humility and repentance, they unleash the mighty works of God in us. And, and so we're meant to think this through. It's high confidence in God's work in us that allows, no, encourages. Encourages us to search our hearts as the scriptures command, only the person who trusts in God's inward work is secure enough to deal honestly with his own heart. If I ever get the notion that my future with Christ depends on my efforts, I will never honestly look into my heart as the Bible commands. I'll feel too frightened, too embarrassed, too threatened to deal honestly with my inner self. Trust the greatness of God's work in you. Let that work, the one he began, let that motivate you to obedience and sacrifice and diligence because you know with the creator of the universe working in you, your labor in the Lord can't possibly be in vain, not even in the pursuit of your own holiness. Two, although we're pretty close to done. Make sure this good work has begun in your heart. Look at that sixth verse. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, a good work, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Um, 
Notice, Paul didn't write, nor did he intend to write, about the one who had put a good belief in you. No, what God has begun in you, in me, what God has begun in us, all of us who follow him, is a work. There's, there's an energy to it. There's a dynamic to it. There's an ethical, sacrificing, serving quality that grows up out of that work. It shows up. It manifests itself. It works. It's not works, not words rather. It's not pretending. He begins a good work in our lives. You you can see this emphasis when you look at the whole context of that sixth verse. Philippians 1, 3 to 7. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. We talked about that. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers. See the verb? Partakers with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So Paul's joy didn't just come from the fact that these people believed what he believed. That's very true and very important. But it didn't just come from the fact that these people liked what Paul was doing. His joy came from the fact that they were doing what he was doing. If God is at work in you, it'll show up as you work in the body of Christ. Three, last point. The work of God creates a people of the future. It's in Philippians 1, 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began, you'll notice the contrast, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so now we come to this blazing heart of this great text. You'll see the time words. Began, completion. Past, future. You're like me. No one knows what the future holds in terms of our earthly life. This ignorance is a frequently missed form of God's love and grace. If if many of us knew all of our future trials, we'd be terrified to death right now. It's bad enough to live with a past that can't be changed and haunts us without adding fear of a future that might not be bright. And so Paul wants to put hope and joy into these people's uncertain futures. That's why he doesn't tell these Christians that God will work in them until the day of their death. Nor does he tell them God's work will prevent possible persecution, execution, torture, sickness. No one is promised exemption in these words. Paul tells them, and Paul tells us, 
something much better than that. He tells us that all of God's work can't be snuffed out by anything that this earthly life brings. He tells us, like the Apostle Peter, that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, 1 Peter 1.4. He tells us that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.39. So we're not going to be kept just until the end of our lives. God's work in us will be completed not by some gray gravesite on a wintry morning in the cemetery. No. It will be completed when we kneel with joy at the feet of the one who overcame both sin and death and works without weakness, without holiday, without sleep, and without rest to bring us to his side in glory. And that, church, is a good work to celebrate indeed. Let's pray. Thank you that you are a big picture God. Powerful enough, sovereign enough, loving enough, gracious enough to take hearts like ours, start a work of grace, and bring us safely to your side. That nothing separates us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That you don't do half works. I pray for people who might be listening to this who only know of church the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer, a few of the ethical mandates of Jesus, but don't have the work of God in their hearts through Jesus Christ. Draw them to yourself, I pray. And encourage your church. Encourage all of us. We see the bottom side of so many things and so many issues to trust that you are at work in your church. We bless you in the name of Jesus. Amen.